This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Lumley. Hello and welcome to Witnesses of History. As we come to the end of the series, instead of concentrating on stories from the date where the episode is released, I'm looking at the best of some of what I have left uh, in these last three episodes. But this is the first recording since the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. And in this country, we're now preparing for the coronation in May of His Majesty, King Charles III. So we start with an eyewitness report by Charles Greville from the 29th of June, 1838, and the coronation of Queen Victoria. The coronation, which, thank God, is over, went off very well. The day was fine, without heat or rain, the innumerable multitude which thronged the streets, orderly and satisfied. The appearance of the Abbey was beautiful, particularly the benches of the peeresses, who were blazing with diamonds. The entry of Salt, Marshal Salt, who had been one of Napoleon's marshals, was striking. He was saluted with a murmur of curiosity and applause as he passed through the nave, and nearly the same as he advanced along the choir. His appearance is that of a veteran warrior, and he walked alone, with his numerous suite following at a respectful distance, preceded by heralds and ushers who received him with marked attention, more certainly than any of the other ambassadors. The Queen 
looked very diminutive, and the effect of the procession itself was spoilt by being too crowded. There was not interval enough between the Queen and the Lords and others going before her. The Bishop of London, Blomfield, preached a very good sermon. The different actors in the ceremonial were very imperfect in their parts and had neglected to rehearse them. Lord John Thin, who officiated for the Dean of Westminster, told me that nobody knew what was to be done except the Archbishop and himself, who had rehearsed. Lord Willoughby, who was experienced in these matters, and the Duke of Wellington, and consequently there was a continual difficulty and embarrassment, and the Queen never knew what she was to do next. They made her leave her chair and enter into St Edward's Chapel before the prayers were concluded, much to the discomfiture of the Archbishop. She said to John Thin, Pray, tell me what I am to do, for they don't know. And at the end, when the orb was put into her hand, she said to him, What am I to do with it? Your Majesty is to carry it, if you please, in your hand. Am I? she said. It's very heavy. The ruby ring was made for her little finger instead of her fourth, on which the rubric prescribes that it should be put. When the archbishop was to put it on, she extended the former, but he said it must be on the latter. She said it was too small, and she could not get it on. He said it was right to put it there, and, as he insisted, she yielded, but had first to take off her other rings, and then this was forced on, but it hurt her very much. And as soon as the ceremony was over, she was obliged to bathe her finger in ice water in order to get it off. Let's hope things go a little bit more smoothly in May 2023. D.H. Lawrence visited Lake Garda in Italy in February of 1913 and writes about the lemon gardens under cover for winter. In the morning, I often lie in bed and watch the sunrise. The lake lies dim and milky, the mountains are dark blue at the back, while over them the sky gushes and glistens with light. At a certain place on the mountain ridge, the light burns gold, seems to fuse a little groove on the hill's rim. It fuses and fuses at this point, till of a sudden it comes the intense, molten, living light. The mountains melt suddenly, the light steps down, there is a glitter, a spangle, a clutch of spangles, a great unbearable sun track flashing across the milky lake, and the light falls on my face. Then, looking aside, I hear the little slotting noise which tells me they're opening the lemon gardens, a long panel here and there, a long slot of darkness at irregular intervals between the brown wood and the glass stripes. Voulez-vous, the signor bows me, in with outstretched hand. Voulez-vous entrer, monsieur? I went into the lemon house, where the poor trees seemed to mope in the darkness. It's an immense, dark, cold place. Tall lemon trees, heavy with half-visible fruit, crowd together and rise in the gloom. They look like ghosts in the darkness of the underworld, stately and as if in life, but only grand shadows of themselves. And looking here and there, I see one of the pillars, but he too seems a shadow, not one of the dazzling white fellows I knew. Here we are trees, men, pillars, the dark earth, the sad black paths shut in this enormous box. It is true, 
there are long strips of window and slots of space so that the front is striped and an occasional beam of light fingers the leaves of an enclosed tree and the sickly round lemons. But it is nevertheless very gloomy. But it is much colder in here than outside, I said. Yes, replied the signor, now. But at night, I think... I almost wished it were night to try. I wanted to imagine the trees cosy. They seemed now in the underworld. Between the lemons, beside the path, there were little orange trees and dozens of oranges hanging like hot coals in the twilight. When I warm my hands at them, the signor breaks me off one twig after another till I have a bunch of burning oranges among dark leaves, a heavy bouquet. Looking down the Hades of the Lemon House, the many ruddy clustered oranges beside the path remind me of the lights of a village along the lake at night, while the pale lemons above are the stars. There's a subtle, exquisite scent of lemon flowers. Then I notice a citron. He hangs heavy and bloated upon so small a tree that he seems a dark green enormity. There's a great host of lemons overhead, half visible, a swarm of ruddy oranges by the path, and here and there... A fat citron. It's almost like being under the sea. From 1913, we go back a hundred years to March 1813 and the death of a climbing boy, evidence taken before the Parliamentary Committee on Climbing Boys in 1817. Climbing boys were those who were sent up the chimneys to clean them in the large houses of London. A House of Commons committee in 1817 recommended that the use of climbing boys be prohibited, but the recommendation was not carried into effect. On Monday morning, the 29th of March, 1813, a chimney sweeper of the name of Griggs attended to sweep a small chimney in the brew house of Messrs Calvert & Co. in Upper Thames Street. He was accompanied by one of his boys, a lad of about eight years of age, of the name of Thomas Pitt. The fire had been lighted as early as two o'clock the same morning and was burning on the arrival of Griggs and the little boy at eight. The fireplace was small and an iron pipe projected from the grate some little way into the flue. This the master was acquainted with, having swept the chimneys in the brew house for some years and therefore had a tile or two broken from the roof in order that the boy might descend the chimney. He had no sooner extinguished the fire than he suffered the lad to go down and the consequence, as might be expected, was his almost immediate death, in a state, no doubt, of inexpressible agony. The flu was of the narrowest description and must have retained heat sufficient to have prevented the child's return to the top, even supposing he had not approached the pipe belonging to the grate, which must have been nearly red-hot, this, however, was not clearly ascertained on the inquest, though the appearance of the body would induce an opinion that he had been unavoidably pressed against the pipe. Soon after his descent, the master who remained on the top was apprehensive that something had happened and therefore desired him to come up. The answer of the boy was, I cannot come up, master. I must die here. An alarm was given in the brew house immediately that he had stuck in the chimney and a bricklayer who was at work near the spot attended and, after knocking down part of the brickwork of the chimney just above the fireplace, made a hole sufficiently large to draw him through. A surgeon attended, but all attempts to restore life were ineffectual. On inspecting the body, various burns appeared. 
The fleshy part of the legs and a great part of the feet more particularly were injured. Those parts too by which climbing boys most effectually ascend or descend chimneys, viz. the elbows and the knees, seem burnt to the bone, from which it must be evident that the unhappy sufferer made some attempts to return as soon as the horrors of his situation became apparent. To Germany now, and Sefton Delmer's report on the Reichstag fire of February the 27th, 1933. Van der Lubbe, a Dutchman, confessed at his trial that he had started the fire, but it is widely believed to have been organised by the Nazis, who used it as an excuse for suppressing political opposition and seizing dictatorial powers. This is a God-given signal. If this fire, as I believe, turns out to be the handiwork of the communists, then there is nothing that shall stop us now crushing out this murder pest with an iron fist. Adolf Hitler, fascist Chancellor of Germany, made this dramatic declaration in my presence tonight in the hall of the burning Reichstag building. The fire broke out at 9.45 tonight in the assembly hall of the Reichstag, the German parliament. It had been laid in five different corners and there is no doubt whatever that it was the handiwork of incendiaries. One of the incendiaries, a man aged 30, was arrested by the police as he came rushing out of the building clad only in shoes and trousers without shirt or coat, despite the icy cold in Berlin tonight. Five minutes after the fire had broken out, I was outside the Reichstag watching the flames licking their way up the great dome into the tower. A cordon had been flung round the building and no one was allowed to pass it. After about 20 minutes of fascinating watching, I suddenly saw the famous black motor car of Adolf Hitler slide past, followed by another car containing his personal bodyguard. I rushed after them and was just in time to attach myself to the fringe of Hitler's party as they entered the Reichstag. Never have I seen Hitler with such a grim and determined expression. His eyes, always a little protuberant, were almost bulging out of his head. Captain Goering, his right-hand man, who is the Prussian Minister of the Interior and responsible for all police affairs, joined us in the lobby. He had a very flushed and excited face. This is undoubtedly the work of communists, Herr Chancellor, he said. A number of communist deputies were present here in the Reichstag 20 minutes before the fire broke out. We have succeeded in arresting one of the incendiaries. Who is he? Dr Goebbels, the propaganda chief of the Nazi party, threw in. We do not know yet, Captain Goering answered, with an ominously determined look around his thin, sensitive mouth. But we shall squeeze it out of him, have no doubt, Doctor. We went into a room. Here you can see for yourself, Herr Chancellor, the way they started the fire, said Captain Goering, pointing out the charred remains of some beautiful oak paddling. They hung cloths soaked in petrol over the furniture here and set it alight. We strode across another lobby filled with smoke. The police barred the way. The candelabra may crash any moment, Herr Chancellor, said the captain of the police, with his arms outstretched. By a detour, we next reached part of the building which was actually in flames. Firemen were pouring water into the red mass. Hitler watched for a few moments, a savage fury blazing from his pale blue eyes. Then we came upon Herr von Papen, urbane and debonair as ever. Hitler stretched out his hand and uttered the threat against the communists, which I've already quoted. He then turned to Captain Goering. Are all the other public buildings safe? He questioned. 
I've taken every precaution, answered Captain Goering. The police are in the highest state of alarm and every public building has been specially garrisoned. We are waiting for anything. It was then that Hitler turned to me. God grant, he said, that this is the work of the communists. You are witnessing the beginning of a great new epoch in German history. This fire is the beginning. And then something touched the rhetorical spring in his brain. You see this flaming building, he said, sweeping his hand dramatically around him. If this communist spirit got hold of Europe for but two months, it would all be aflame like this building. By 12.30, the fire had been gotten under control. Two press rooms were still alight, but there was no danger of the fire spreading. Although the glass of the dome had burst and crashed to the ground, the dome still stands. So far, it's not been possible to disentangle the charred debris and see whether the bodies of any incendiaries who may have been trapped in the building are among it. At the Prussian Ministry of the Interior, a special meeting was called late tonight by Captain Goering to discuss measures to be taken as a consequence of the fire. The entire district, from the Brandenburg Gate to the west to the River Spree on the east, is isolated tonight by numerous cordons of police. Our penultimate story this time is from 1432 and is by Cristoforo Fioravanti, who was shipwrecked on the coast of Norway in 1432 and with another survivor, Nicola de Michel, wrote an account of his and their adventures. In this island there are 12 little houses with about 120 persons, for the most part fishermen, and they are by nature endued with understanding to know how to make boats, buckets, tons, baskets, nets of all sorts, and every other thing necessary for their use and trade. And they're very courteous one toward another, and serviceable, desirous to please rather for love than for hope of any gift or good turn to be done them again. Fishes, called stockfish in their payments and bartering, are used instead of coined money, and they're all, as it were, of one bigness and measure, of the very which every year they dry an infinite number in the wind and in the time of May freight themselves with them, carrying them through the realms of Denmark, that is to say Sweden, Denmark and Norway, being all subject to the king of Dacia, where they barter and exchange the said fish for leather, clothes, iron, pulse and other things whereof they have scarcity. The inhabitants of this place, both young and old, are so greatly simple of heart and obedient to the commandment of God that they neither understand, no, nor imagine in any wise what fornication or adultery may be, but use marriage according to God's commandment. And to give you a true proof hereof, I, Christophoro, say that we were in the house of our foresaid host and slept in one and the same cottage, where he also and his wife slept, and successively in one bed near adjoining were their daughters and sons of ripe age together, near to the which beds we also slept, almost close adjoining to them, so that when they went to sleep, or when they arose, or when they stripped themselves naked, and we in like manner, we indifferently saw one another, and yet with this purity, as if we'd been little children. But I will tell you more, that for two days together our said host with his elder sons arose to go fishing, even at the time of the most delightful hour of sleep, leaving his wife and daughters in the bed with that security and purity as if he had properly left them in the arms and embracements of the mother, not returning to his home in less time than the space of eight hours. 
There at the beginning of May we saw great variety and alteration. First, their women used to go unto the baths, which are very near and commodious, as well for purity as for the custom they observe, which they hold agreeable unto nature. They used to come forth of their houses stark naked, as they came out of their mother's womb, going without any regard as to their way, carrying only in their right hand a heap of grass in manner of a brim, as to say, to rub the sweat from their back, and the left hand they hold upon their hip, spreading it as if it were for a shadow to cover their hinder parts, that they should not much appear, where having twice seen them, we passed away by them as easily as their own people. The country was so cold, and the continual seeing of them, that it caused us to make no account thereof. On the contrary part, these very women were seen on the Sunday to enter into the church in long and comely garments, and that they might not by any means be seen in the face, they wear on their head a thing like a complete morion with a gorget, which hath a hole to see through at the end, like the hole of a pipe, through the which they behold within, that no further off from their eyes than the hole is long, so that they seem to have it in their mouths to pipe. And worse than that, they can neither see nor speak unless they turn themselves a yard or more from the hearer. I thought good to note these two extreme varieties as worthy to be understood. And our final report, the longest of this episode, is from 1537 to 40, Holderica Schnerdel's report being with the Spaniards in Paraguay. Schnerdel, a native of Antwerp, joined Pedro de Manzosa's expedition to South America in 1535. He was present at the founding of Buenos Aires in 36, and, as he relates here, at the founding of Asuncion in 1537 by Mendoza's lieutenant governor, Juan de Ailos. These people of Carios inhabit a large country, extending itself 300 leagues in length and breadth, they are men of a short stature and thick, and more able to endure work and labour than the rest. The men have a little hole in their lips, and yellow crystal therein, which in their language they call parabol, of two spans long, and of the thickness of a quill or reed. The men and women, both in this country, go all naked, as they were created of God. Amongst these Indians, the father sells the daughter, the husband the wife, sometimes also the brother doth either sell or change the sister. They value a woman as a shirt, a knife, a hatchet, or some other thing of this kind. These carios also eat man's flesh, if they can get it. For when they take any in the wars, whether they be men or women, young or old, they fatten them, no otherwise than we do dogs, hogs, but they keep a woman some years, if she be young, and of a commendable beauty. But if in the meantime she apply not herself to all their desires, they kill and eat her, making a solemn banquet, as marriages are wont to be celebrated with us. But they keep an old woman till she die of her own accord. These carios undertake longer journeys than any of these nations upon the river of Platte. They are courageous, fierce in battle, and their villages and towns are situated upon the river Parana on a high and mounting land. The city of these people, which the inhabitants called Lomper, was compassed with a double bulwark, cunningly made of timber, as with a hedge or enclosure, every trench being of the breadth and thickness of a man, and one bulwark of trench was twelve paces distant from the other. The trenches, being digged a fathom deep into the earth, were so high above the ground as a man might reach with the length of a sword. 
They also had pits and caves 15 paces distant from the walls, cast up the height of three men, in the middle of which pikes were stuck, yet not appearing above ground, as sharp-pointed as a pin. They made these pits to be covered with straw, putting twigs and branches therein with a little earth strode between, that we Christians pursuing them or being ready to assault their town might fall into them. But they cast these pits for themselves, and at length they fell into them. For when our general John Eulus, gathering all his soldiers together, who were not above three hundred, for they left sixty to guard the brigantines, ordering and raging the companies, went against their city Lampur, they understanding before of our coming, making a stand of musket shop off with their army of four thousand men, furnished with bow and arrows after their manner, commanded that we should be told that they would provide us victual and other necessaries, desiring us to go back and return to our ships, that so departing as soon as we could, we might peaceably return to our companions. But it was neither good for our general nor ourselves that we should consent to their request, for this nation and country, by reason of the plenty of victual, was almost also most fit and commodious for us, especially when, as four whole years passed, we had not seen a morsel of bread, living only with fish and flesh, and oftentimes also in great penury. These carriers, therefore, taking their bows and arrows, entertained and saluted us therewith. But as yet we had no mind to hurt them, but commanded to signal, signify unto them that they should be quiet and we would become their friends. For they would not be so contented, for they had not yet tried our guns and swords. When, therefore, we came somewhat nearer unto them, we discharged our brass pieces against them which, when they heard and saw that so many men fell down dead, and when neither bullets nor arrows appeared, but holes only were seen in their bodies, they wandered with astonishment and horribly terrified, took their flight in troops, overthrowing one another like dogs, and while with great celerity they hastened to shelter themselves in their town, more than three hundred men in an amazed fear fell into the foresaid pits which themselves had digged. Afterwards, coming to their city, we assaulted it, they courageously defending themselves till the third day. But when they could defend themselves no longer and were much afraid of their wives and children which they had with them in the town, they earnestly entreated our favour and mercy, promising that they would do anything for us and for our sakes and our pleasure so that we would spare their lives. In this stir, sixteen of our men were slain. They brought also to us General Elos, six women, among the, which the eldest was but eighteen years old. They presented also six stags and another wild beast, entreating us to stay with them. They gave two women to the soldiers to serve them for laundresses and other services. They also provided us victuals and other necessaries for food, and so peace was concluded between them and us. These things being so done, the Carios were compelled to build us a great house of stone, timber and earth that the Christians might have a place of refuge if hereafter they moved any sedition against them wherein they might be safe and might defend themselves against injury. We took this village or city of theirs by assault the year of Christ 1537 in the Feast of the Assumption and gave it that name Assumption and here we abode two months. These Carios are fifty leagues distant from the Aigars and from the island of Bona Speranza, which the Tiembus inhabit about three hundred and thirty and four leagues. 
Making their Afora league with these curios, they promised that they would side us when we went to the wars, and if we were to undertake any service against the Agars, they would send 18,000 men with us. When our general had thus determined, taking 300 Spaniards with these Cairos, going down the river of Parabol with a stream, we marched 30 leagues by land till we came to the place where the said Agars dwelt. We slew them, both old and young, in the old place where we left them, unawares in their houses, while they yet slept, early in the morning between three and four of the clock. For the Carrios had diligently searched out all, oppressing them even to the death. For the Carrios have this custom that being conquerors in war, they kill all without any commiseration or pity. After this, taking away five hundred canoes or boats, we burnt all the villages to the which we came, doing much hurt besides. After one month passed, some of the people of Aegis came unto us, who, being absent far from house, were not present at this fight, and craving pardon, yielded themselves into our hands. The ninth day after our departure from them, we came to the Sherves. This nation is very populous, yet they are not true and natural, among whom the king himself have a house. But these sheriffs maintain a priest, expert in the mysteries of religion, and have a ring of wood hanging at their ears. These men also wear a blue crystal in their lips, of the shape and bigness of dice. They are painted with a blue colour from the paps to the privities, with that excellence that I think a painter is not to be found in all Germany, which could perform the like so finely and artificially. They go naked and are beautiful after their manner. We stayed therefore one day with these sheriffs, and after going fourteen leagues forward in three days' journey at length, we came to the place where their king dwells, from which the inhabitants are called sheriffs. His country contains only four leagues in length, yet hath he a village situated upon the river of Parable. Therefore, leaving our ships here, we committed the custody thereof to twelve Spaniards, that returning we might use them for our defence. We also entreated the sheriffs dwelling there that in the mean space they would friendly have they would friendly converse with the Christians and entreat them courteously, which they did. With necessaries for our journey, passing over the river Parable, we arrived at that place where the seat and house of the king was, who, when we were almost yet a league from him, comes forth to meet us, guarded with more than twelve thousand men, in a champion plain, yet friendly and peaceably. The path wherein they marched we was eight paces broad, strewed with flowers and grass on every side, and made so clean that not so much as any little stone, stick, or straw appeared. The king had also with him his musicians, whose instruments were like our crooked trumpets, which we call shams. He gave commandment also that they should hunt stags and other wild beasts on both sides of the way which he went, so that they took about thirty stags and twenty ostriches, or jandu, which spectacle was very pleasant to behold. When we were entered into the village, he always appointed one lodging for two Christians. But our captain, together with his servants or followers, was brought into the king's palace. He is wont to have music at the table, and at his meat whensoever he pleaseth. For when they play upon the flutes or pipes, men leading the dances and skipping with most beautiful women, which dances and skipping seem so strange to us, that looking upon them we had almost forgotten ourselves. In the rest the sheriffs are like those people of whom we spoke before. The women make them gowns or upper garments of thin cotton, almost like our clothes, which are in some parts silk, which we call arras or burchet. 
They weave in these diverse shapes of stags, ostriches and Indian sheep, according to every of them is more skillful in the art of weaving. In these garments they sleep. If the air happens to be somewhat cold or putting them under them, they sit upon them or use them at their pleasure for other services. These women are very fair and venerous. In performing this journey, we spent a year and a half doing nothing else but making continual war. And in this journey, we had brought unto our subjection about 12,000 men, women and children who were compelled to serve us as bond slaves, as I, for mine own person, did possess about 50 men, women and children. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org. Thank you.